Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, so good to hear from Brother Dale this morning, wasn't it? Amen. So, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we are continuing our series here in Philippians that we've entitled To Live is Christ. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we've really focused in on this idea of unity in Christ and this Christ-like mindset of humility that is ours in Christ and that's needed actually for this idea of humility, this reality, reality of unity to actually happen in our midst. And in today, Paul here, he's going to kind of take another little turn. He's going to show us the, the really the, the implications of all that he's told us so far and the need to live a life of obedience so that we shine as lights in a dark world. And so if you found your place, uh, Philippians chapter 2, we'll beginning in verse, cha- uh, verse number 12, uh, verses 12 through 18. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your your word that you breathe out through your servants, Paul. And we pray, O God, that you would give us ears to hear, help us to understand your word, Lord. We confess our neediness, and we confess, Lord, that we desperately need you so that we can uh, bow before your word and submit to what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you know, the the presidential election is uh, upon us here in another nine days or so. Uh, of course, uh, you're probably glad it'll be all over. I know I will be glad that it, it'll be all over. Uh, but one of the things I was thinking about in terms of the election is that uh, we are very blessed, and I'm sure you agree with this, very blessed to live in a free country where we can actually vote, where we can actually cast a vote. We live in a country where we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And I think sometimes, especially as uh, uh, Christians in America, we sometimes take these things for granted, especially this idea of freedom of religion. We don't, we, we're gathered here today, and we're not fearing that the police are going to come in and kick down the door and, dr- and drag us into prison and, and put us into gulags and the re-education camps and all those things, because we live in a country that believes in the freedom of religion. Yet, if you've been paying attention... Uh, for any for for a while, and um, and if you've been paying attention and, and understanding what's going on in the culture, you recognize that tolerance for a biblical Christianity and tolerance for those who hold to biblical Christianity, who hold to a biblical worldview, 
continues to decrease at warp speed. Little by little, and now sometimes not even little by little, sometimes exponentially we see the, the decrease in the tolerance for biblical Christianity, and that's due to what one commentator says is, quote, the rise of secularism. That is, man, not God, is the measure of all things. And the rise of relativism, that is, there is no absolute truth, except the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. And then the rise of individualism. I am who I say that I am. I am who I feel like I am. And, and I get to make up my own rules. I get to do what I want to do. And uh, I have my truth and you have your truth. And so we're just going to, you can't tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. It's my choice. And, you know, we can go on down the line about how this how individualism worked itself out in our culture today. And as a result of all this, we've seen an increase, I think it's safe to say, of moral darkness in our culture. As that which God calls good is called evil. And that which God calls is right is called wrong. And in the name of quote-unquote social justice, that which God calls just is called unjust. Now we hear all that, and we're maybe familiar with all that, and maybe we're very concerned about, about all that, and rightly so, but it would be a mistake to think that we're the first ones, first Christians to ever have to go through something like this, and that we've, we're the first ones to ever live in a culture like that. No, this state of affairs is nothing new. As a matter of fact, the culture in Paul's day was steep in deep depravity in deep moral darkness, and frankly, a moral darkness that we can hardly fathom. If you read the history of the ancient Roman culture, you'll know what I'm talking about. Thankfully, we're not quite there yet. But they lived in that kind of a culture that was steeped in moral depravity, steeped in moral darkness, and that was very hostile to Christianity. They saw Christianity as a, as a complete threat, as subversive, to the, to the entire culture, and to the government. And so we saw Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, how he exhorted the Philippians to not be frightened, not be frightened as they strove together for the faith of the gospel because they were enduring such opposition. And he tells them in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw Paul focused on this need for unity and this need to display this Christ-like mindset of humility that was seen most profoundly in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the exalted, eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son who brought himself down to the deepest depths of humiliation so that we, sinners we are, could be saved. And now in our text, what Paul does is, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, he kind of, he, what he does is he says, okay, that's, that's all true. Now, here's how we ought to live in light of that. Here's how we ought to live in light of all that. So he's applying what he's just told them about who Jesus is and the glories of who he is. And now he says, here's how we ought to live in light of that. And so the main idea of our passage is this. Because we are in union with the person of Jesus who saved us, we must shine as lights in the world by joyfully obeying the Lord. So there's four things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, we see the call to obedience, verses 12 through 13. It'll be on your screen there as well. 
And the first thing we see with this call to obedience is that this, this call flows out of our union with Jesus. And so we see right away the very first word in chapter 12 is what? The word is therefore. Of course, you've probably heard when somebody says, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? And of course, what they're trying to get at is that, well, Paul is really building on what he's just told them. What he's just told them takes us back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, but especially verses 5 through 11, where we saw, as I just mentioned, how Christ brought himself down from the highest heights of exalted glory down to the deepest depths of debasement and shame, the shame of the cross, as he bore our guilt, as he bore our shame that was ours before a holy God. And then having accomplished our salvation, remember on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He has accomplished perfectly our redemption by his work on the cross. God then raised him up powerfully from bodily from the grave. And now he has ascended into heaven. He is now back. He is now seated in glory with that, with that exalted glory that he had before time even began. And so since now, you are in a spirit-wrought union with the exalted Christ, Paul says, here's what we need to do. And he says, listen, you need to obey not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. You remember now, Paul, he's planted this church. He's their spiritual father, so to speak. And so, you know, it's, it's very natural for them to say, well, when Paul's around, we're going to behave. We're going to be good boys and girls. But when dad's away, well, all bets are off. And I'm sure, you know, none of us here can relate to that. Uh, we can't relate how it is, you know, when, when dad's around, when the parents are around, we're, we're going to be good, you know. None of us, we never had that problem, but uh, I know I did. I could tell you many stories of how, you know, when my parents were around, I had my little halo, the halo was out, but as soon as they went away, I took the halo off and... Well, you know, and my mom is still finding out things that I did that she didn't know about. <laughs> I didn't know you did that. I said, well, you know. <laughs> so uh, Paul is like, listen, don't just be, uh, be uh, concerned about obedience when I'm there. Be just as concerned, be just as diligent to pursue Christ when I'm not there, when I'm absent. Of course, you can relate to that as well in the workplace, you know, when the boss is around. I remember when I was in the military, you know, we would be in the office and uh, we would be kind of goofing around. But then when Colonel so-and-so came through, we were all like the sharpest troops you'd ever want to see, you know. <laughs> and then as soon as we left, it's like, I'm, so, I'm glad that's over. We're playing solitaire, right? I forgot where we were at with this mind-bending thing we were talking about. So be obedient, not only in his presence, but in his absence. And then he describes obedience in a very... Now, he's talked about obedience already, you have to understand. In chapter 1, he's talked about, he talked about to live is Christ, right? So our whole life has to be oriented around the person of Jesus. To live is Christ. And then he says, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, so he's already told us, he's already encouraged us to obedience. But here, he describes obedience this way. He says, work out your salvation. Now, I'll stop right there. Now, as soon as we, hear, we see, we hear this, work out your salvation, some might think that Paul is saying, wait a minute, so is Paul saying that we need to work, uh, that, that salvation is by works? I mean, what's he trying to say here? And if he said that, then we've got a big problem. 
And of course, if he said that, there's a big contradiction because the scriptures really, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, teach us that salvation is not by our works. It's by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And so there's passages, we could talk about, we could talk about many passages, but just a couple here, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that Paul wrote. He says, we hold that one is justified, that is right before God, by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. Paul couldn't be any clearer, could he? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, listen, not of works. Is there anything about that that's not clear? No, it's perfectly clear. So what in the world is Paul talking about? Because now it seems very unclear. Just when I thought there was no confusion, now I seem like, it seems like there's confusion. Well, no, salvation is entirely the work of God's free grace. It is impossible to get to heaven by your works. I am justified before God when I finally give up trying to save myself by my works. And then I rest completely upon the works of another, upon the perfect works of Jesus Christ alone, who died on the cross to pay the penalty of, that I deserved of eternal judgment, because that's what's happening on the cross. It's not the nails and the thorns. It's that on the cross, Jesus becomes one mass of sin, and he bears the curse for us. He bears the righteous indignation and wrath of a holy God, and he bears the outer darkness of what hell, as it were, on the cross, the penalty that we deserve on the cross that I was supposed to pay. And then he rose bodily from the dead so that I could have the, the, the gift that I never could deserve or never could earn, which is the free gift of eternal life in Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's glory alone. So what is Paul getting at? What does Paul mean? Well, Paul does not say, listen, he does not say work for your salvation. Rather, he says work out your salvation. One little word <laughs> that makes an eternity of difference. And it separates biblical Christianity from every other religion on the face of the planet. Every other religion on the face of the planet basically says when you boil them down, if, if your good works outweigh your bad works, you put them on the scale, if your good works outweigh your, your bad works, then you might experience heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to call it. But see, biblical Christianity says something different. If you're going to use the scale analogy, the scale analogy would be something like, our works are like a feather. It's not even that. It's less than a feather. It's like a little grain of sand. And on the other side is this two trillion ton weight. There's no way. <laughs> you cannot be. Only biblical Christianity says that our salvation is not by what we do. It's by what God has done for us. It's our, and our salvation is based entirely upon the works of someone else. Biblical Christianity alone, Christianity alone says that. 
And salvation is not by our works, but entirely of Christ. But now that raises the question here, we need to focus on this one word, salvation. Work out your salvation. What does that mean? What about this word salvation? Because see, what we do with the word salvation, we often think of the word salvation in terms of, well, that's what happens when I'm saved, when I'm not going to, I'm going to go to heaven. And I, I don't, I'm not going to go to hell now. Praise the Lord. I'm done. That's it. That's all that salvation has to do with, right? Well, not quite. Not quite. Salvation has to do with, with the full scope of our salvation. It has to do with our justification. Justification is when we first, by God's grace, are given the gifts of saving faith and repentance, and now we turn to Christ and place our trust. We turn from our sins and we trust in Christ alone. And at that moment, then, we are declared forgiven of all of our sins and righteous in Christ. Why? Because the perfect righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. And so we talk about then, uh, we've been uh, set free from the penalty of sin. But that's not all that salvation includes. Salvation also includes this, this big $5 word that we quoted a little earlier in our affirmation of faith of sanctification. Sanctification is the idea, as we saw earlier, it's the work of God's free grace, the work of His Spirit, whereby we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, being enabled to die more and more to sin and live unto righteousness. We're sanctified in Christ. The moment we become a believer, we're sanctified, definitively set apart from Christ. We're declared to be holy. And then progressively, the Holy Spirit works in us so that we become who we are in Jesus. And then we are glorified in Christ. That glorification happens at the end of time, when we're going to be raised bodily, just as Jesus was raised bodily. And we're going to be transformed. And we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin itself. In sanctification, so in justification, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. And in sanctification, we're being delivered from the power of sin. And one day, with glorification, when Christ returns, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin altogether. Isn't that good news? And all of that is wrapped up in one little word, salvation. And you have all of that right now in Christ. Some of the things not in its fullness, obviously, but we have that in Christ because salvation then ultimately has to do with this. It means that by God's Spirit and grace alone, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive. We've been raised up by the Spirit who has now brought us into union with the person of Christ where we have every spiritual benefit in Christ, every single one, and we are now called to live out of that reality, to live out of that, be who we are in Christ through faith. And the fact that he calls this work highlights a very important thing. Because the temptation might be to say, well, so I'm saved, and I'm being conformed, and uh, so I guess it's just let go and let God, <laughs> right? But no, he says work. Work it out. Work out what God has put in you, this glorious salvation. So it highlights that we are active in this, and that it involves real effort. 
We could say it involves real struggle because we're struggling against the flesh. Because just because now we've been saved, it doesn't mean we've been set free from sin, from our sin, you know, the, our sinful inclination. It's still the old man, as I said before, dies hard. I thought about this in terms of trying to get my mind around an, a good illustration that might help us understand this. And I thought about working out that everybody here can relate to. That we're so excited about working out, especially on January the 2nd, right? We said, so we're going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out, you know. I gained a few pounds over the holidays. So we go into the gym, and we're like all like we're ready to go. You go into the gym, and you're ready to work out. And maybe you work out really hard the first day. Then the second day, it's, well, you know, we will calm it down a little bit. And the third day, it's like, well, maybe I'll get there next week. And then next week comes, yeah, we'll wait for next year to work out. <laughs> but there's a little saying here about working out. Maybe you've heard it. And then yeah, you want to be careful with it because it's not necessary. You've got to be careful with it. The saying is, no pain, no gain. Have you heard that? No pain, no gain. And the idea is, if you don't exert yourself physically, you won't see any positive results. You know, and we've all been in the gym. Maybe I, I've been in the gym before, and we really don't exert ourselves <laughs> that, that much. And so if you don't exert yourself physically, you won't see any positive results physically. And spiritually, I think the same is true. If we do not engage in the, quote, in the pain of working at our salvation, we will never experience the gain of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Right? It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve diligence. It's going to involve us. Yes, I have to press in. It's going to involve effort. That raises the question, well, how? How do I do this? I think the first thing we see here is, is not, it's not self-reliance. Of course, in a couple ways. First of all, work out your salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. Now we see that fear and trembling. So, so wait a minute. So as Paul saying, we, we need to walk around petrified, scared to death of God. You know, I'm walking up, oh, what am I going to do? Can I disobey? Did I have to, you know. No, it's not about being petrified. Although, we ought to be petrified. The scriptures say that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God apart from Christ. There is a real sense where we ought to be terrified of that, of what it means to, to, to stand before a holy God and in the fullness of his judgment. But I think the idea here is the idea of reverential and joyful awe for who God is in all that he has done for us in and through the person of his son because he has now delivered us from that wrath. Now, so it's fear and trembling. It's to, it's to have reverence and awe for him and we realize that apart from Christ now, because now we're in union with Christ, it's, it's, it's developing this mindset of of humility, lowliness of mind. Because now we recognize, as Jesus told us, I can't do anything apart from him. So as I'm pursuing the Lord, I realize the first thing I should say, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I should say, I can't. I'm not able in and of myself. And that's true. That's why the spirit of humility, it's fear and trembling. I recognize my lowliness of, of like, like my feebleness, and I just can't do this on my own. I can't do it in my own strength. And so I shudder to think what would happen to me if I tried to do it in my own strength. 
And I think that's where many Christians get into trouble. Because we try to do the things that God wants us to do without relying on the means that God has given us to do those things. What are the means that God has given us? Well, His Word, and prayer, and the church. But we begin, we put that aside as, well, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to work out this salvation. And we don't say it, but the idea is, in my own strength. And then we fall flat on our face and we fail. And a lot of people just say, well, that Christianity thing didn't work out too well. So I'm done with that. No. I can't do it in my own strength. And I shudder to think what would happen if I tried. I love what one commentator says, quote, we are conscious of our, of our own frailty and feebleness. Conscious of our own frailty and feebleness, we rightly fear to stray from the side of our great shepherd. We're sheep. We're like, I'm staying close to the good shepherd. Because I get away from him, I'm done. I'm toast. So that raises, that takes us to the second point, the power for obedience then. Look at verse 13. So we work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then, I love this word, for. For it is God who works in you. So already we've seen the, the, how powerful little words are. We saw the word therefore. We saw the word out. Now the word for. Work out your salvation with fear. For it is God who works in you. And the reason the word for here is so important is because without it, Paul will be telling us something that is utterly impossible to do. If he just stopped at work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it would be oppressive. It would really be oppressive. But instead, what does he do? Work it out for God works in you. Instead of oppression, it's grace-empowered freedom. Going back to the illustration of the gym. So you go into the gym, and, you know, I normally press 500 pounds, so it's not no big deal. <laughs> you know, and so but what it is, is you, you have, and I don't know how good this illustration is going to work, but it's just something I thought about. Going to the gym, you've got to press the, you got to lift these weights. And God has called us to lift an impossible amount of weight. This whole idea of pursuing Christ and working, it's an impossible amount of weight. He's called us to go into the gym and lift five tons. And he just says, get on the bench and put your hands on the bar. Now, press. <laughs> okay, right, Lord. <laughs> so you press. And guess what? The bar comes up. Why? Because I have an all-powerful spotter who's actually exert, exerting his power and enabling me to press up the weight. And that's kind of how it is, I think, uh, with spiritually. God is the one who's working in us. He tells us, get on the bench. Do it, and I'm going to empower you to do the things that you're not able to do. I'm going to empower you to do that which is impossible by working in you by my spirit. And the only reason we work out is because God is working in us by his spirit. That's the only reason. And so when we're saying, so for us then, and we talked about the means, in the, in the uh, spiritual gym, what is the equipment that God has given us now to be able to work out for him? Well, it's the means of grace. I've already mentioned it, right? It's his word and prayer and the church, the fellowship of believers. We desperately need these things. 
thinking about prayer. So as we go forth and we're, we're talking about working out our salvation, we know that as I do that, God is working in me to be able to do that. And so I stop and I rest and rely upon Christ in prayer and in reading his word and praying that God would open my eyes to see his word and praying that God would help me to love my neighbor as I love myself. And we see how extensive the work is. He says to will and to work. He works in us, God who works in you, to will and to work. In other words, to give you the desire. You know, a lot of us might think, well, of course I have the desire to obey God. Of course I want to deny myself and take up my cross and live a life of self-sacrifice and deny my rights. No problem. Well, if we believe that, then we're self-deceived, aren't we? No, because in our flesh, Paul says, dwells no good thing. And so we, we recognize, listen, I don't really want to do these things. The only reason I want to do them is because God has given me a new nature, and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me that gives me those desires. So he's working in me to will, to have the desire to do those things, and to work, to actually do those things, and in a way that pleases him. And so we're absolutely dependent upon God. And so we're called to obey. We're called to obey. Obedience is not a curse word. I know that in some, it, it just seems like it, maybe it's just me, but in some contexts in our, in our churches, it, it, people talk about obedience almost as if it's like, well, don't talk about obedience. It's, well, no, obedience is, is very important. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Obey me. The question is, is we've got to ask is, well, how do I do that? How do I go about obeying? And there we want to say, the same way that you got saved initially, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is the same way we go about obedience. By renouncing ourselves and casting ourselves upon God's grace and trusting in Christ alone to work in us by His grace and by His Spirit as He gives us the mind of Christ and enables us to do these things. And so we're called to obey, and it's not just let go and let God. God wants us to run hard after him and to live the way he wants us to, and to be confident that God is working in us to accomplish those things, those things relying on him. And we do that by using his means of grace. The word, prayer, sacrament. And then where do we do those things? We work out your salvation. Okay, where? In the privacy of my home? That's easy. <laughs> you know, so we talk about reading the word. Read the word. So, pray for them that despitefully use you. No problem, Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. No problem, I got that. As long as I stay in my house. <laughs> then, when you go out into the world, what happens? Somebody comes and they do something. That they offend you. They do something that you don't like. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Well, we discover how hard it is to love our neighbor. We discover how hard it is to love our friends sometimes, the people closest to us. And so it's worked out in the arena of life. And what God does is he puts us in situations. He puts us in the, in the arena of life, and he's working in us, and he uses circumstances as well to mold us and to shape us. He shows us, you know what, I blew it that time, didn't I, Lord? Yes, you did. <laughs> you blew it. That's why you're in process. That's why I'm in process. So God is at work in us, 
in the cause of working for him. And because of this, none of us can boast about our holiness. Right? If God is the one who's working in us, who's enabling us and empowering us, the only reason that I do this is because of his grace, what can I boast in? John, how do you account for your growth in Christ? You're a really mature believer. How did that happen? Well, because, you know, I was so diligent in my studies. and it... <laughs> Of course. Yeah. <laughs> no. Because God worked in me to will and to... Listen, I would not do it if it wasn't for him. He gets all the glory. See, we always come back to him. I can't boast. And I can't, lure, I can't look down my long spiritual nose at other people. I, like, I, you know, some people, they, they make up their spiritual meters. Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm at a 10, but that person over there is, on, is a 3. And we start measuring people up. That goes away when we recognize, no, it's all God. It's all God and his grace. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God in one place. Which takes us to the third point, the outward display of obedience, verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 15, Paul says, so work out your salvation. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, do all things, all things, without grumbling. Is Paul serious? I'm not allowed to grumble. I gotta do everything, everything without grumbling. Yeah, he's serious. And this word grumble, you know, I, I was telling the guys earlier today, I think we all have an understanding of what grumbling is, this idea of, of complaining, but it's deeper than that. And I was trying to get my hands around it, it was like slippery. I want to really nail it down. So I spent a, a long time thinking about grumbling. Not that I have a problem with it. Of course not because of that. Or complaining. It's grumbling. What do we mean by grumbling? Well, it's, the word grumble connotes the idea of growling inside. I won't, I won't do that. But you get the point. The idea of you're growling. There's this, it's like an anger, a frustration. It's a whispered rebellion. It's not an honest question or complaint. But, and one commentator says, it's the idea of spewing discontent and malcontent from a fomenting heart of dissatisfaction. Spewing discontent and malcontent from a fomenting heart of dissatisfaction. It's directed against God and his providence. And at the center of it, really what we're saying is, God, I deserve better. And because I don't have better, I'm going to grumble against God or grumble against whatever. Yeah, God, I deserve that. Why does that person get that? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I always stuck in traffic like this? It always happens to me. Nothing ever, ever happens good to me. God, why did you bring me here only to suffer this way? Well, those people over there, like, I deserve better. Nothing ever works for me. And then the word disputing here conveys evil motives and contentious, critical spirit, always looking to argue. doesn't matter what it is. 
I think the, you know, the sky is blue today. No, 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 actually, there's a cloud right there. It's not clear. There's a, there's a cloud right there. Don't you see that cloud over there? Yeah, I know, but I'm just speaking in general terms. Yeah, but no, you've got to be more precise than that. Okay. We have an argumentative spirit. A contention, a, we criticize everything. And Paul here, with this language of this picture, he's, he's alluding to the Israelites in the wilderness after the Exodus. Do you remember what happened to Israel after God delivers them from their slavery in Egypt? He brings them, and they're in the wilderness, and almost immediately, what do they do? They start grumbling, murmuring. Man, we had it so much better when we were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> Can you imagine? Right? What, what, what is God going to do for us? What is Moses? They let us out here to die. And so they're grumbling, and so God says, uh, they argue with Moses, and so Moses refers to them as this. He says they were a, quote, a, a crooked and twisted generation because of their grumbling. Because they're setting, grumbling, grumbling ultimately is setting, it's, it's, the, it's the essence of self-exaltation. Because I'm saying me, right? I'm the center of the universe. And when I don't get my way, I'm mad. That's what grumbling is. Instead of submitting to God's providence and God's wisdom and recognizing I don't deserve any good thing. The only reason I have any good thing is because of God's grace to me. It doesn't mean we can't say, you know, we can't have questions or we can't want a better situation in our lives. Of course, you could say, you could pray, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Help me, you know, not to struggle this way. Of course. But it, it crosses a line where we start to, to grumble and question God and his goodness and his providence. That's what Israel was doing. So Paul says, don't be like Israel of old. God delivered you from your spiritual, from your, God has delivered you from your spiritual Egypt. He's delivered you from your spiritual slavery. He's brought you in to the promised land of eternal life in Jesus. He's placed you in the midst of a crooked generation. You're suffering greatly for the cause of Christ in this morally warped and spiritually perverse culture that's totally opposed to God. But that's where I have you. That's the way the world is. So don't grumble against God and his promise. Don't devour each other through constantly bickering and arguing and debating about every single thing. Look out for others' people, the other person's interests above your own. Remember what Paul says in chapter 2, a little earlier? Instead, work out your salvation. Work out that Christ-like mindset of humility that is yours in Christ where you bring yourself low and you submit to God and to each other, living lives of self-sacrifice for the sake of others. It's then that Paul says that you will shine, that you will shine as lights in a world full of darkness. Jesus said, Matthew 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. Now, we could spend all day going through applications on this. <laughs> but here's one for us to consider. Just as stars light up the sky, so we're called to let the light of Christ shine out from us in a dark world. Now, here's the thing. Our light can shine brightly, or it can, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, be put under a bushel, under a basket. And there's lots of bushels, baskets that we have that we, that we put, that cover our light. 
There's the, there's the bushel of compromise, the, the bushel of acceptance, the, the bushel of coveting. Here's the bushel of sin in general. And here, Paul, he, he, he zeroes in on the bushel of grumbling and arguing because, as I said, I think it's really at the essence of self-exaltation. We're, we're exalting ourselves over God, over everything and everyone else. It's my interests, it's my concerns that are at the center of everything. It's not about you. It's all about me. And God's not fair when I don't get what I want. And so we're really grumbling against God. And we get sucked into the darkness. And instead of our light shining, darkness emanates from us. And people are not convinced. Let me tell you about Jesus. How good Jesus is after I'm done grumbling about this thing over here. <laughs> in the workplace. And we've complained about everything, every single thing under the sun, to include the fact that the sun isn't shining. Now let me tell you about Jesus. Doesn't sound pretty convincing, does it? And so, all the glories of that salvation that we have in Christ, that to be worked out of us, becomes buried under an avalanche, ultimately of unbelief. That's why it's so important. So how could they do this? How could they be set free from that? How can we be set free from this grumbling and, and work out our salvation? Paul says, verse, verses 15 and 16, that shineth lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We need God's word. This word for holding fast is the idea of holding it, of really taking it in yourself, but also holding it forth. We need God's word to do this. It's a means of grace. God's word, the writer of Hebrews says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it cuts right into the very essence of who we are. It lays us bare, and then he puts us back together. He's at work in us by his spirit and through his word now so that we can start thinking God's thoughts after him and be transformed into his image. And the image of Christ now starts to come out through us because, because of his word. So we hold fast to his word. We stand upon his word. We put ourselves under his word, not over his word. My opinions don't mean anything. It's God's word, and I need to submit to that. So I hold fast upon that, and I stand upon that, and upon that alone. I must stand upon God's word. And then we hold out that word to the world. We hold that forth. Why? Because you say, well, well people aren't going to like that. People don't like what the Word says. People, they consider it foolishness. People aren't going to like me very well. What good is this going to do? Well, the Word of God, again, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You and I don't have the power to save anybody, but God does. And he says, go forth with the sword of the Spirit and, and, and spread the seed of the Word around. And I'm at work now in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and I'm going to bring out the increase in their lives. Don't you worry about what they say. And don't compromise the gospel. Do not compromise the word because it's, it's not popular with the world out there. We have to get to the place, and I say this with all due respect, where I don't care what the world out there thinks about the word. That's where I have to get to. What I care about is, is God's word and pleasing him. And then, Lord, use me to bring this word, to hold it forth so that 
It's like the light of Jesus shines from within me. And as I hold it forth, I don't hold it forth in condemnation of others. I hold it forth with gentleness and respect. I, I recognize that, yes, it's a crooked and a perverse generation that's out there. But guess what? That was me. I was just as crooked and just as morally perverse and spiritually perverse as they are, maybe even more. So now I can see them, look at them through the lens of the gospel with a gospel compassion and grace and say, listen, here's God's word. Let me show you. Let me tell you what it says. Well, I hate that. That's okay. Get away from me. That's okay. Whenever you're ready to talk, we'll talk. We need the word. I love this. To sum this point up, one, uh, one commentator puts it this way. The Bible repeatedly reminds us that God's people have always had to swim upstream against culture. As children of God, we are to be bright stars in the dark night sky of our secular culture. Rather than constantly complaining about our worldly culture or our time in history, let's light the path for others to see another way to live. Let's show them Jesus. And then finally, Paul says, we see the joyful sacrifice of obedience. Paul is being poured out, he says, on the, he's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. Paul here evokes another Old Testament image, the time of sacrifices. During the time of sacrifices, they, the priest would take the wine and he'd pour it out on the land that was already dead before the land was consumed by the fire. This would, this would enhance the aroma of the sacrifice. And Paul is saying, listen, that's kind of what I am. You all have lived sacrificially for the Lord. You've helped me to be able to go forth and minister all throughout the world. So I'm like being poured out on the sacrifice of your faith. And I'm glad to do it. And I'm glad that you are glad to do it. I'm glad that you are rejoicing and living sacrificially for the Lord. That you're not obeying grudgingly. But you see it, yes, I'm laying down my life for Christ because I love him. I'm not to get anything because I love him, and it's a joy. And now in Christ, I have the joy of the Lord, something that nobody can ever take from me. And I take great joy now in serving the Lord because I know that he's working in me to will and to do his good pleasure. And so we're called to shine as lights in a dark world. But for that to happen, we first must be united to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And so if you've never come to Christ, never come to the light, I want to encourage you today to do that, to understand. Paul says in one place that we, apart from Christ, we are darkness. Not just in darkness, we are darkness. But Jesus bore your darkness on the cross in my darkness, so that you could have life. And now he says, come and receive, so that you can experience this, this great salvation that's only found in Christ. And for Christians, for those, for those of us who are Christians, those who are united to Christ, let us turn away from those bushels that are covering our light. Maybe it's the bushel of grumbling and complaining. Let us turn from that. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, resting upon him to go forth and out to serve him joyfully as we rest upon Christ and trust in Him, knowing that God is working in us by His Spirit to do the things that please Him, regardless of what it costs us, knowing that we have the greatest treasure in the world. We have Christ, and He is with us to the very end 
of the age. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do love you and praise you and thank you for your word to us. Lord, hide your word in our hearts. Empower us by your spirit to renounce ourselves and to live for you, for your glory and the good of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.